Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect the ocean. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and today's episode features Dr. Patrick Heidkamp of Southern Connecticut State University. Dr. Heidkamp shares his global perspectives on how we can innovate our way out of environmental issues. And he also talks about Project Blue and Southern's Coastal Transitions Conference. For more information, check out futurefrogmen.org and look for us on social media at Future Frogmen. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. Uh, thank you for having me, Richard. I really appreciate you uh, making the time to uh, give me some time to talk. It's our pleasure. Patrick, uh, last spring, 2020, I judged a Connecticut State Blue Economy competition. Several of your Southern Connecticut State University students participated. I was very impressed with your students who had all innovated early stage business ideas regarding the use of kelp, a type of seaweed. So I asked them if they would be on a sort of shark tank-like panel, which Future Frogmen was hosting during June's World Oceans Week. The students agreed, they prepared, and they really did a fantastic job. We have a video available of that on our website, futurefrogmen.org. Since then, you and I have been visiting remotely, and I recently visited you at Southern's impressive new Worst Center for Coastal and Marine Studies. Patrick, you have many impressive credentials and involvements, including being professor of geography and the current chair of the Department of the Environment, Geography, and Marine Sciences at Southern Connecticut State University. You're also an affiliate of the Economic and Social Rights Research Group at the University of Connecticut's Human Rights Research Institute. I'd like to share another part of your bio with our audience, as I think it helps frame much of what you may share with us today. It says that you are a broadly trained geographer with research interests in environmental economic geography, just sustainability transitions, the geography of human rights, specifically economic rights, and the history and philosophy of geographic thought. Patrick, this aligns very nicely with Future Frogmen's areas of focus and our core values. So now that we have this frame of reference, Patrick, can you tell us more about yourself, starting with your youth and how you came to the United States? Uh, starting with my youth, well, that's a that's a pretty long, long uh, run now already, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to remember some, some of the relevant pieces at least. Um, I came to the United States in 1993 as an undergraduate student. I was a student in, G- in Germany at the University of Erlangen in, in Nuremberg, and I did my first semester of geography studies and kind of had this whole idea of coming to the United States for a while. I really also needed to improve my English language skills, which were quite abysmal at the time. So there was an opportunity for me to uh, go and go to a community college in California and take a semester's course of classes and basically just focus on learning English much better. That's how I ended up here. The, the problem is I never really went back home. So I've been here since 1993 with obviously vacations and trips home to see my family um, and a little stint intermittently as well. But that's how that's the first time I came, or not the first time, but that's the time I came to America to basically stay. Really, if you want to talk about how I got to where I'm at right now, you have to go a lot further back. 
when I was a kid, uh, my vacation, uh, my vacations that my family took me to were very often to the beach in the Netherlands. Um, we had a small vacation house. Uh, I grew up reasonably uh, privileged, I have to say. I have, uh, you know, upper middle class in Germany. Uh, my father owned the business. Working, working parents, but you know, definitely not from a family that wasn't able to, you know, afford a vacation. So we would do uh, a yearly vacation in the summer to the Netherlands, uh, to a house that was you know, about 15 minute drive from the beach, about two hours from Cologne where I grew up and we spent lots and lots of time on the beach. So I think that clearly shaped obviously my love for the ocean, which is why you're talking to me right now, actually. Over the years, um, that love for the ocean, you know, then included, you know, swimming and playing on the beach. And then eventually, you know, mostly through my older brother who lives in New Zealand right now, I got introduced to surfing. And I really liked surfing and I started to go surfing in southern France in Biarritz and then in the summers in Portugal and, and tried to catch as many waves as I could uh, while I was still, you know, a high school student and trying to take time off, even though sometimes there wasn't any time off. And I remember uh, one very weird weekend where we had decided just on a Friday on a whim because we had heard there was a good swell coming to Biarritz and we just left on Friday at lunchtime at school and didn't really come back till I think it might have been Wednesday the next week and I had to call in and call in sick and you know and my parents weren't really happy we had borrowed my father's car which he needed for the job and so there was a, you know, little stories like that that are sometimes quite fun to remember. And they're long enough ago that nobody can get in trouble for them anymore at this point. Statue of limitations is over on uh, skipping school 40 years ago, however long it might have been, 35 years ago. So I, I got introduced to surfing and surfing kind of manifested my love for the ocean, starting having a concern for, for the ocean. The other things that I think are important um, and how I ended up where I'm at is uh, I was very early on involved in, in kind of seeing the growth and the advent of the Green Party in Germany. And I got quite interested in that. And a lot of that had to do with, uh, you know, atomic energy and the fears that atomic energy created in, in Germany. I grew up in Western Germany. I still was still Cold War times actually basically till I came to the United States. I mean, it, you know, um, the wall came down while I was still in Germany, but I left shortly thereafter, a couple of years after to the US. Um, and by the wall, I mean the Berlin Wall. I don't know how many people in the audience are gonna be quite a bit younger than us, so we'll, uh, we'll have to go there. But you know, the, the, the nuclear threat was quite there and we were all quite af afraid of uh, nuclear energy, atomic energy, um, and really worrying about, you know, and that was also, you know, then that manifested itself with Chernobyl, where, you know, people are really starting to be quite scared. And I think that really helped the German environmental movement out in terms of really pushing a non-nuclear agenda. And I was quite involved in that as a young person. And I started thinking of you know, while I wasn't a very good high school student, it was mostly just kind of getting through, but that some the, the piece of academics that did interest me tended to be the ones that had to do with travel, because that was already instilled through my parents, had to do with the ocean, that was, you know, kind of a result for that, 
And then anything that had to do with environmental issues, because I, I did have a concern on how we would, you know, treat the world and kind of all came together. I didn't really fully become interested in being an academic or doing research or even being a, a good student till I came to the United States. Previously, I was much more interested in surfing. I was very, very interested because I was, I was obviously not living near the ocean. Most of my time was spent near Cologne, which is far enough from the ocean that you can't just, as a young person, get to the beach real quickly. So I got interested for, through surfing and the skateboarding, and I got interested in mountain biking. I like to be physically active. And I also got interested in American football. And I actually played for a team when I was, I think I started when I was 14, maybe 15 almost, because I remember taking the train to uh, Cologne all the time. And it was like a, you know, an hour long train ride to actually play for the one American football team in the, in the region. It was called the Cologne Crocodiles, which is quite funny because there's no crocodiles in Cologne except in the zoo. Um, it a, was, a, was a wonderful experience for me. It was an, an outlet for my energy. I had a lot of energy was when I was 15, 16, 17 years old. And I think it probably kept me away from making lots of bad decisions. So I played football. I loved riding mountain bikes around the woods. I loved skateboarding and I loved surfing. And those things were all mostly popular in the U.S., any information that we could get at the time about the sport of mountain biking, about the sport of American football, about the sport of surfing, all that had to be, it was all in English and it all was stuff coming from the US. And we're talking pre-internet time. So information was magazine, surfer magazine. We had a football magazine in Germany called Huddle. You know, that then when somebody, you know, got some sort of American magazines that basically just translated some stuff. Football on TV wasn't really a thing yet. I think they would show maybe the playoffs. For some reason, they ended up showing the 49ers all the time, and I didn't like them because I saw the uniforms were ugly. You know, whatever 16-year-olds or 17-year-olds think. Um, but what it all did, all those things together kind of made me want to come to the U.S., and I was fortunate enough to once go on a training camp with my football team from Cologne to the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. That was the first place I visited in the United States. We flew into Chicago, went to University of Wisconsin-Platteville, which is nowhere near, near the ocean, obviously, and a very small town America. And I fell in love with small town America because it was so different than Cologne that I grew up in, or I grew up near Cologne, but still in the Cologne metro area, over a million people in a fairly small area, lots of high rises of five, six, seven story homes. And small town America was the complete opposite. And it had all the things that I kind of knew out of the movies, you know, pickup trucks and, you know, people watching football and, you know, burger restaurants and all the things that weren't, it was just different. It was an adventure. And then, you know, I got back, finished high school. There's a lot of, lot of in-between stuff I'm leaving out. Like I actually stopped high school after 10th grade and uh, started an apprenticeship to be a blacksmith. And after that, I went back to high school when I was about two or three, you know, three years older than anybody else. Finished high school, had a terrific geography instructor, kind of solidified my love of geography as a discipline. And then I decided that I was, you know, that I was going to apply to university. And I was started university in Germany in 1992. 
I got a little bit lucky because it was right on the heels of, uh, you know, Germany reuniting um, East and West Germany, which at the time was important for me mostly because uh, Germany had a draft, a military draft. So you had to do men or a mandatory uh, military service, I want to say. And that would have been 18 years of my life that I had to play soldier. Uh, I got very lucky because uh, when I went to my medical test for the uh, military, first time I had a broken arm and then it gave me a year to recover. And then the second time I came back, I just actually had uh, ripped my ACL, anterior cruciate ligament, playing football. And then they said, well, this guy's injury prone. We don't want him as a soldier, uh, which was great with me because I didn't want to spend the 18 months doing something I absolutely hated. I think I could have done civil service, but the, there was an injustice in the system where civil service was 24 months and the military was 18 months. Since then, Germany has done away with the draft, but I think because of reunification, there were lots of soldiers, and if you weren't 100% fit in the eyes of the military, they wouldn't just not take you. So that was kind of um, a really nice kind of thing that happened to me, I believe, because uh, I'm not a big fan of the military in any way, shape or form. In any case, that allowed me to start university then in Erlangen in uh, 1992 in the fall. Uh, I did my first semester. I took some lecture classes and I was, you know, I, find, I found it quite awful because, you know, I took my human geography course, um, forget the professor's name. Um, but it was with, you know, I think there were about 200, 250 people in the lecture hall. There weren't enough seats. People were sitting crowded on the floor. And then as the semester moved on, more and more seats. And there was really no mandatory type stuff. There was really no exercises that you had to complete. You just had to show up. Because at the time in Germany, the way it was in terms of studying, you would really have your first big test after four semesters. So you just go and attend lectures, write down the lectures that you went to, and then you would be tested on the ones that you attended basically in all the courses. But one thing that did happen is I got uh, friendly with one of the professors, uh, Manfred Richter, uh, who was a Highland geographer, had an interest in the United States, just like myself. And he said, you know, if you really want to make a career out of geography, you need to learn English a lot better. And that's where this whole idea came from. And he said, why don't you try to figure out if you can do an exchange semester somewhere? That has really helped me a lot. And he said, why don't you go visit some places and figure out if you could do that? So long story short, I ended up going to uh, College of the Redwoods in Eureka, California. It was affordable because uh, it was a two-year college, a community college. I didn't have to pay a whole lot in there. There was no massive out-of-state tuition at the time for non-California residents. I had sold my motorcycle so that I could, you know, basically afford the first year of school. And then I got scholarships thereafter. Uh, and it was a complete shift in how school went for me. Uh, it be, my, became much more like school with assignments and with, uh, you know, having to complete papers and exams on a regular basis. And I was actually much more successful as a student than I felt how I was in, in Germany, where I think the only thing I was really religious about was going for lunch to the cafeteria. I had some very good instructors, um, Glenn Stockwell, who uh, unfortunately passed away uh, almost a decade ago now. But he was my political science instructor, and he was heavily, heavily involved in the Surfrider Foundation lawsuit 
using the Clean Water Act uh, to close down some polluting pulp mills in Northern California, in Eureka. And I became a member of Surfrider Foundation at the time and really involved myself in the aftermath of that lawsuit, which there was some funding uh, made available as part of the lawsuit to make some improvements to the North Jetty area in, in uh, Humboldt County, which is the area where lots of surfers were and where there was two pulp mills. It was a Louisiana Pacific pulp mill and the Simpson Lumber Company pulp mill. As a result of the lawsuit, um, the pulp mills had to basically either change their act and clean or clean up their act and use a non-polluting way of bleaching their paper or shut down. And that's really what happened. Uh, Louisiana Pacific initially shut down, but then they converted their process to a chlorine-free bleached paper process. Um, and the other one, Simpson, I, be I believe I get those right. Uh, Simpson went and started a pulp mill in Baja, Mexico. For that's my understanding, at least. So they just left completely. And I saw this as a massive win for for the environmental community, obviously. And then Eureka, California at the time was wonderful if somebody interested in looking at environmental conflicts. You had a lot of blue collar industry on one end. I mean, we're talking about an area that's the size of, Humboldt County is about half the size of Connecticut. Humboldt and Trinity to get, County together are um, the size of Connecticut, roughly, I would say. And we're talking about you know, in Humboldt County, you had 110, 120,000 people at the time, and Trinity County maybe had 80,000 people, maybe even 50,000 people at the time. But it was a completely sparsely populated area compared to where I grew up in Cologne or where I'm living now in Connecticut. But there was a lot of uh, push there to protect the redwood forest. There was a lot of push to protect some, in, you know, endangered species, marbled merlets, spotted owls, things like that. And there was a very, very strong environmental movement. We're talking about the early 1990s, which is obviously key for the American environmental movement, you know, kind of earth first and that type of stuff. Uh, we read Edward Abbey, uh, Monkey Wrench Gang as an English class, and that was kind of the mindset of the time. Um, it was the time when Julia Butterfly Hill was uh, occupying a redwood tree for over a year. The tree was named Luna and the kind of old growth redwood tree to prevent it from being cut down. It was though that was that time frame that uh, I lived in California. So we looked at this win. Uh, this is a massive win for you know the environmental side of things. First of all, as surfers, because surfers were getting ear infections because of the polluted water. Um, obviously, there was impact on the environment, on the ecosystem. We saw it as a big win. However, I also realized at the time that a lot of my friends lost their jobs. Uh, people I surfed with, I had a wonderful time with and, you know, hung out with and had, you know, drinks with after school because I was kind of part of the local surf crowd at that time. I uh, had lost their jobs and lost their livelihoods because they couldn't work at the pulp mill anymore. And I kind of realized the complexities and intricacies between environmental and economic issues. And the other story I like to tell uh, about how I became actually an economic geographer, even though I ended up being a bro reasonably broadly trained in the discipline, um, I became an economic geographer because I saw the lumber trucks on Route 101. So it was the lumber trucks with redwood trees on the back. 
And you obviously, we're always concerned about all the cutting down of the redwood trees. We, you know, we're very concerned about forest loss in the north, in the you know, in Northern California at the time. And I couldn't make heads or tails of it because I looked out my dorm room window and I saw lumber trucks going north and lumber trucks going south. And to me, that just made no sense. And I had to kind of this epiphany and said, well, if somebody could just figure out how to just send them either north and just send them south, it will save it'll save a lot of money. Obviously, it's a much more complex problem, but I started looking into uh, transportation logistics in location of where places, especially places of economic activity, are located. Um, with the pulp mills, you know, one closing down and then moving to Mexico, I started looking at, well, how do you really locate, you know, how, how do decisions get made about where a factory goes? And I started getting interested a little bit into location analytics and location analysis, which is a traditional economic geography field. And I kind of never really looked back and, you know, kind of had that in the back of my head all the time. And I think I became a bit of an economic determinist and kind of thinking of how, you know, that the outcomes that we see reflected in the landscape. So basically just how capitalism inscribes itself in the landscape through our actions. So I finished in uh, College of the Redwoods. I never really played football anymore because I ripped my uh, anterior cruciate ligament. I uh, did two years at College of the Redwoods. I met my wife, my, my future wife at the time at College of the Redwoods. She still had another year left. I transferred to Humboldt State University where I studied oceanography for a year. And I actually realized that I didn't like oceanography all that much. I thought that I was going to be able to do oceanography and geography together. And because Humboldt State had a very strong oceanography program, I realized it was actually too sciencey for me. I thought that a lot of the ocean issues I was interested in, I could address using oceanography. But I only studied it, you know, I took chemical oceanography and physical oceanography and oceanography cruise. And really the only thing I liked was the oceanography cruise where we went out on a boat called Pacific Raider, an old Coast Guard cutter um, that we took out on, you know, a, I think four or five times during the semester. It was my instructor, Hellganger, and a wonderful time. You know, and I was this really tough, super tough surfer dude. I'd never had been more seasick than being on the Pacific Raider. But, you know, that was only one time that I remember. But, you know, maybe because of the seasickness, but also maybe because, uh, mostly because of the science. I really never liked chemistry um, as, a, as a subject. I never liked the lab. I liked the outside. I didn't really do well in the classes. And I kind of dropped out of Humboldt State after a semester and then I took a semester off and then kind of reevaluated because what I was missing in the oceanography side was the social science bit. And it's really quite interesting because right now, if you go and start looking in the, in the marine field, marine social science is something that's really coming up. And I already back then was really more concerned about policy, more concerned about management, obviously about the economics of things. But I kind of had like the idea that oceanography was going to be this because I was a surfer and it would be cool to be a surfer and an oceanographer. Well, geography had the hook in me and I just ne never really let go. At the same time, I was also bike racing. I wanted to, in one reason, I wanted to stay in Humboldt County because it was beautiful. Still one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. I also really liked mountain biking there, but I really got into bike riding more and more and more. And I actually started racing bicycles 
And that was probably the reason I ended up moving to Santa Rosa, California and transferred from Humboldt State then to Sonoma State University. And there I enrolled in the geography program, finished the geography program in 2001, which was kind of sad because I wanted to finish in 2000 because Arnold Schwarzenegger would have been able to sign my college diploma being the governor. But I think it's some, it's Governor Gray now, I believe, that signed my college diploma. My wife's is signed by Arnold. So I'm a little bit upset about that still. I wish I would have had a college diploma signed by Arnold. So if you put the numbers together and you kind of think, oh, he started college in 1993 and he didn't finish till 2001. Yeah, that's right. That's ex exactly right. It took me a while because in between, I was racing bicycles. I took semesters off. I had jobs to kind of support my bike racing habit. I lived in Germany for a year with my wife. We just wanted to try to, you know, figure it out. Um, we, in the end, we didn't. <laughs> and we came back to the US. So we had our ups and downs as college students, but we kind of stuck with it. And I hope, I hope to always instill this in my students. I have students come into my office stressed out about you know, getting the college degrees done in four years because they want to save money. Well, another way to save money is if you pay as you go, but it takes longer. It takes a lot longer to get your degree done. But in any case, I finished my bachelor's of arts in geography in uh, 2001. I worked in the wine industry, implementing geographic information systems over the summer at uh, a company in Santa Rosa. Um, and then I already had applied though to graduate school. And my wife and I both applied to graduate school together. And Erin, uh, my wife, she applied for medieval studies and I applied for geography. And there are really not too many programs where you, or, or universities where you can do both. Study, you know, get a master's degree in medieval studies and a master's degree in geography. There were like some in Oregon and some in Washington State or British Columbia. Some schools where the grades definitely weren't good enough. I mean, I had a 3.4 undergraduate degree, which was okay, but wasn't great. But we both got lucky and we got accepted at the University of Connecticut for our master's programs and with full funding, which was very important. So again, you know, Quick trip across the country. I flew out, tried to find a house. My wife drove out across with the dogs and we ended up finding an apartment, uh, started graduate school and I fell in love, in love with academia. I loved my time in graduate school. All of a sudden, everybody in the room cared about what they were doing. It was a completely different atmosphere. I had uh, some incredible mentors during graduate school. Peter Halverson, um, who was a geographer at the University of Connecticut, was probably my best teaching mentor. Um, my uh, undergraduate, uh, my, my master's thesis advisor was Susan Lucas and uh, Bill Berenson. And then my PhD advisor, Dean Hannick, uh, all really shaped quite a bit on, on, on what, I, what I turned into in the long term, in terms of research, in terms of interests. Um, and kind of just how to go about things uh, being, an, being an academic. So that's, that's how I ended up in Connecticut. Um, I did my master's thesis with something that's at least related to the water. I wrote it on urban waterfront revitalization, uh, looked at small New England towns, did some studies on uh, Portland, uh, Maine, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Newport, Rhode Island. 
got a publication out of that, finished my thesis. And then I had this wonderful idea of doing this project on uh, my, my dissertation project for my, my PhD on Baja, California, for obvious reasons. Uh, there's really good surf there. And there happened to be a project that seemed interesting at the time. They were working on, a, on an initiative called Escalera Nautica, where they were going to put harbors all around Baja, California for pleasure boats from Southern California. They were also going to build this land bridge or basically a massive road across Baja um, to take boats out halfway down Baja and then take them into the Sea of Cortez. And I did some calculations and everything seemed a little bit wonky. Um, and there was some terrific work done by Serge Dedina um, on gray whales. And he got quite involved with this project and that inspired me to get involved with the project. Um, and I wrote a, you know, I started and I wanted to do a dissertation on this uh, Escalera Nautica project. But then uh, what ended up happening is that the project got put on hold. I couldn't really see how the study that and the toolkit that I had developed as a grad student could be applied to the conditions that were actually on the ground. And I got a little bit in a funk thinking about, well, you know, how can I push this project forward if the government actually pulled the plug on the project? How can I still do a uh, you know, dissertation on that. And some of that was based on because I didn't have the theoretical foundation to think about it differently. I really was focused much more on methods, geographic information systems, uh, econometric modeling, and that type of stuff. Luckily, at the same time, I was kind of going through this funk. I started a course in the economics department, agricultural resource economics department at the University of Connecticut with Bruce Larson. And he was uh, interested in labels for credence attributes. So for example, shade grown coffee label, fair trade label, um, organic labels. And he introduced in his class how the econometric modeling for this works. And I had this idea, well, I can combine this and then really start kind of putting that all together. Um, I, was happy, I was lucky to get some funding for uh, studying in Guatemala, and I looked at the coffee industry in Guatemala. So I actually wrote my dissertation about uh, equal labels in the coffee industry. Um, it was a Guatemalan case study on shade-grown coffee labels. Now you might ask, how does has anything to do with the ocean and with things we're working on right now? Well, it's actually quite interesting because the current project I'm working on right now is one of my colleagues, Dr. Emma Cross, is actually about the potential of assessing a biodiversity label for uh, farming uh, seaweed in a multi-species environment, or what's often referred to as regenerative ocean farming, or is referred to as multi-species ocean farming, or what's referred to by Bren Smith as 3D ocean farming. And Bren Smith is the person that basically kind of put it at the forefront in the Long Island Sound region, has gotten quite famous for his 3D ocean farm and his approach how to engage as an ocean farmer. So that's what I'm working on right now. And that's kind of the link, how I got to the US, how I got to my degree, and how my degree relates to what I'm doing now. Now, in between, there are a number of years where I just you know, started working at Southern Connecticut State University, where I got my uh, position initially as an assistant professor, uh, taught in the Department of Geography. 
Um, I maintained my affiliations with the University of Connecticut, especially with the Human Rights Institute, because I'm very interested in how all those things, eco-labels, farming, food systems, how all this stuff kind of affects people. That's, that's really what I'm looking at. While at Southern Connecticut State, I've taught a, a, a number of number of different classes, but I developed a study abroad program to South, uh, South Africa in the wintertime focused on environmental justice, and I developed a study abroad program to Iceland that I teach every summer. Um, that's focused on geographic field techniques and on environmental economic geography. So looking at how the economy and the environment work together or are in conflict with each other and how that kind of all plays out in the real world kind of context. And my, my teaching is very much focused on being out in the field and learning from observation and talking to people. So it's actually quite different than my training, which was all about econometric modeling, which was about uh, using mathematical quantitative models in a geographic information system environment. And in my dissertation, what I learned is that this modeling approaches might be great, but it always kept me wondering you know, why it then doesn't work in the real world. So the real world breaks down a lot of the models. And I would say that in my academic career, I shifted from somebody who was kind of a methods person to somebody who's much more interested now in, I would describe it as transdisciplinary action research, working with the community to develop research questions, to co-create knowledge about something, and to kind of come up with solutions. So I've turned from a quantitative economic geographer with slight Marxist-leaning tendencies to somebody who is, I think, a pragmatist trying to come up with solutions for you know, the 21st century. And I think everybody changes along their academic trajectory, and that's where I'm at currently. So right now, I'm working on uh, you know, what you already introduced, Project Blue. And uh, Project Blue has been uh, a lot of fun, and it's a, it's a project focused on you know, implementing transdisciplinary action research through the involvement of student teams that come up with innovations for, you know, the seaweed industry currently in Long Island Sound. That's what we had at the moment. Well, that's quite a, quite a story and uh, really well told. I love the fact that you shared with the audience and uh, some of our audience will undoubtedly be students, the journey, because it's not necessarily a clean path for four years or, or however many years. So you, you had a, a very uh, interesting journey and it's evolved. I love that you've evolved more towards the pragmatic solutions, which, and you, you're leveraging all your academic skills and learning uh, to now apply to the real world where we really need it with climate change and associated problems that we're facing. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of really of the journey is because if you know I went into a lot of doors and down a lot of walkways and you know paths that you know might have seemed in at some point as a dead end, but I learned quite a bit through it. Um, and I do I, I think what I want to highlight the most through telling the story is that just traveling, being open to new ideas, is really kind of a key shaper of someone you know, of yourself really and i think if i wouldn't have had those opportunities and sometimes made even silly decisions i might have you know gone it might have ended up differently 
going to Iceland um, and doing a study abroad trip to Iceland was an afterthought. I wanted to do a study abroad trip to Guatemala at the university because that's where I had done my dissertation work. And I thought it'd be great to show my students what I learned. But the university already had a, a trip to Guatemala and I didn't want to compete with the public health department's trip to Guatemala and it's a wonderful trip. So I said, where else can I take my students? And Iceland became like, well, that's a four hour flight. That should be easy. And I know Iceland is kind of cool. So I started doing the trip and I learned so much by taking the trip. And we're living in a time right now where it's especially now exacerbated by COVID, where it's much more inward looking. I mean, we're looking inward. We're looking in our small communities. We, you know, prior to COVID, we're already talking about closing borders all over Europe and all indefinitely in the United States context. I mean, President Trump was elected on building a wall last time around and it's about closing and inward looking. And to me, that's always been like exactly the opposite from who I am. I'm, if you want to put a label to it, I'm definitely a globalist, somebody who looks at the world as a whole. I wish there wouldn't be any borders. I think borders are terrible ideas. I think they are obviously there. We're not going to be able to get rid of them, but I would like to have much more movement of people and opportunity. Um, and but if you really start looking at all, you look at climate change, you look at migration patterns that are a result of climate change, you, you're putting all those things together. I'm really happy that I, at some point in the past, made the decision to be a geographer because it's the one discipline that's so multidisciplinary to start with already. It's an interdisciplinary way of looking at things rather than just a narrow discipline. So I think I set myself up for actually asking at least good questions for the 21st century, but not necessarily the solution piece. When I traveled uh, in Iceland, I saw environmental issues. They built a massive hydropower dam in uh, Eastern Iceland, which hydropower, clean energy, right? We talk about clean energy is, you know, hydro is clean. But having also lived on the West Coast, you know that big dams impact salmon runs. And that was a big issue out West. Uh, especially then linked to the Native American communities and impacting their food systems. So geography allowed me to be a systems thinker and probably a lot quicker than any other discipline would have. I think I probably have some gaps in some other things that people are much more well-versed in. I mean, I couldn't explain you some basic physics principles probably or chemical principles. But in terms of thinking in systems and trying to figure out how things are connected in the world, geography is a wonderful discipline for that. So in Iceland, I learned about this hydropower project. And I said, well, okay, they need energy, but why do they need that much energy? I started looking into it. it, has to do with the Alcoa aluminum smelting plant. So again, something I'm interested in just because I'm an economic geographer. Why do we make aluminum in Iceland? There's a population of 330,000 people in Iceland. Why do they need a three massive aluminum smelting plants? Well, because energy is cheap and actually the shipping cost of bringing the alumina or the bauxite from Australia or Brazil, wherever it might come, and the cathodes from Norway and bringing it all to Iceland and then shipping aluminum to the Netherlands to be then further shipped seems to then make perfect economic sense. And that's the world we live in where you know, the fact where, where the factory's location is driven by cost rather than any other kind of, you know, implications. Nobody concerned themselves with the true value. Well, I wouldn't say nobody concerned themselves, but, 
even though some people concerned themselves with the true like aesthetic value of the valley that was completely put underwater for from the hydro dam it really comes all down to economic value and the economic value is the piece that drives those things but i also learned in iceland i really got introduced to this innovation in the ocean kind of ideas through so the university center of the west fjords in iceland where i have some friends that i started collaborating with and also through the iceland ocean cluster and that was founded by Thor Sigfusen, and um, he started this whole idea around, well, Iceland has a very, very big fishing industry, and the major import was cod fillets. But there's a lot of stuff that was going to be thrown away, or has been thrown away traditionally in the cod industry. You cut out the fillets and the rest got thrown away, or mostly thrown away. And Thor came out with this idea of using 100% of the cod. What can you do with it? What can you use it for? So he came up with this 100% fish model. And it's about basically using every little part. You use the fish skin to make collagen. You use the bones to make calcium. You use the cod liver oil for supplements. You use the fish leather to actually you know, use it in the fashion industry. And, you know, for making belts and bracelets and shoes. Um, there's a tannery in Northern Iceland that specializes now in tanning the fish hides or the fish skins and then getting it to the, to the fashion industry. And I found that very innovative because we started to approach then uh, the idea of kind of a no waste economy, like a more of a circular economy type of approach, a zero waste economy. And that made a lot of sense to me because there's a lot of protein in the fish after you cut the fillets out. There are a lot of usable parts in the fish. And if we use everything that we would, in turn, at least in, in my mind, reduce the pressures on fishing because you, you can make money with you know basically less fish that you catch. Um, that was one way to look at innovation. And Thor developed this ocean cluster model around the, uh, the, the codfish industry in, in Iceland and companies started to innovate. There's now a company that makes soda out of cod collagen. It's the second selling soda in Iceland, I believe, or at least those are the numbers I've been given. And there's quite some innovation coming out of that. And then I said, well, that's really awesome. And it's a business approach to kind of dealing with a sustainability issue. And I was kind of really not a fan of the business approach prior to that, prior to I, you know, I would say almost like maybe six, seven years ago when I started thinking about that. In, in a similar vein in South Africa, I learned about transdisciplinarity in action. We take students on a South Africa trip, a focus on environmental justice, I already mentioned that, and we go to an informal settlement and look at how the informal settlement deals with you know, current conditions. And one of the problems they have in informal settlements, and we're talking about you know, metal shack shanty towns here, uh, one of the things that they are missing or is, is access to energy. And there's, the, the South African government has basically made a promise that everybody should get energy, but you know, obviously the resources are missing for that, and you have migration and in-migration, out-migration of certain areas. Pressures on the electrical grid are high. And the University of Stellenbosch, Professor Mark Swilling, introduced me to a project uh, in, in uh, Enkanini town, uh, Township or informal settlement in uh, South Africa. 
And that project was a transdisciplinary action research framework to basically work with the community to figure out how to get solar panels on those on, on tin shacks that people were living in. Because the idea was to talk to the community, what do they really need? And one of the needs that the community expressed, aside from clean water, which is another project, was the idea of we want electricity. But in the process, they also found out that they don't need the electricity to run a washer and a dryer and six other household appliances and lights and this and an oven. But really that the needs that they expressed, absolute needs that they had was to be able to charge the cell phone batteries so that they have access to the labor market because the cell phone is important for access to the labor market. If you're a day laborer, you need to know, you need to be reachable. And being able to maybe run a computer and a TV to watch you know, soccer games, for example. They weren't really interested in well, they were interested, but they didn't necessarily need to run a washer and a dryer and an oven. That wasn't the absolute need. So working with the community, they came up with a business approach of basically creating a company within the community that would bring energy in the form of solar panels, individual home solar panels to the community. And that worked out really well. And I was introduced to how the project came to be. And I got very interested in how you got people from very, very different ethnic backgrounds, from very, very different economic backgrounds. I mean, university professors are reasonably wealthy compared to day laborers in South Africa. How do you get those people on the table? And it was all about this single issue. It's like you talk about a single issue and you're gonna to try to come up with solutions for a single issue, rather than trying to come up and solving all the problems in one time. You know, the, the whole, I mean, South Africa, we had a, a legacy of apartheid. That needed to be left at the door. A xenophobia among ethnic groups living in this informal settlement needed to be left at the door. So the moderators of working with the community had to make sure the only discussions that were being had were being up about electricity. And what that then led to was an incremental positive change where people now have access to energy. I learned a lot from this project and I wasn't part of the project. I just learned, read about the project, was introduced to it. I bring my students every year to kind of, you know, reiterate all this. But I said, well, if that's the way to really move forward, because the general issues are the same, then I might not be as extreme as in South Africa. You have a very, very high level of inequality in South Africa, but we do have a high level of inequality in the United States. Uh, especially if you look at a state like Connecticut, where the inner cities are comparatively poor and the suburbs and you know, some of the shoreline community, communities are ridiculously wealthy. So you have a pretty big wealth disparity gap. It's reflected obviously in our education system, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of how I came to all this. And because our previous Department of Geography at the university and our previous Department of Environmental Studies and Science Education merged to form this new Department of Environment, Geography, and Marine Sciences, which is now about four years old. And I've been the chair of those, well, it's actually five years old, I think, right now, which I've been lucky enough to chair. We started having this strong focus on, on the ocean. We got. Uh, the World Center for Coastal and Marine Studies, some of our faculties are affiliated with, and we realize that we actually all have a very strong common interest in, in the ocean and also especially in Long Island Sound. So my idea then came to actually implement a transdisciplinary action research framework 
based on the Long Island Sound blue economy, ocean economy, but with a strong focus on the UN's definition of the, uh, of the blue economy. So one that includes sustainability and includes, um, you know, kind of a justice component as well. So I'm quite interested in trying to figure out how we can use the ocean's resources or in our local context, the Long Island Sound resources to towards a just transition. And by what I mean is a transition towards a more sustainable society. And, and in my opinion, you can only have a more sustainable society if you also have a more equal society. I'm leaning here on research by Julian Agyeman, uh, who's at Tufts University working in urban environments, making a strong argument for societies that are more equal actually being much more innovative, making an argument for that we cannot just have, you know, a green sustainability, but that we have to look at justice in that context. And that's also what Mark Swilling in South Africa argues. He calls it uh, a just transition. Um, uh, Julian Agyeman calls it just sustainabilities. I think it's basically the same thing they're talking about, but it's you know from slightly different angles and just because of different parts of the world. I would like to see how we can look at the blue economy, a narrative which has exploded over the last decade from an initial idea, basically, to something that is heavily, heavily sold now as this solution to climate change. And a big part of this in, in our local context is the idea of seaweed farming, which has, you know, a high carbon sequestration potential, a high nitrogen fixing potential. So it'll have positive impacts on climate change, positive impacts, or at least it's positive in terms of considering climate change, you know, positive in terms of ocean acidification. So a lot of people are pushing this seaweed for sustainability narrative. And we're all looking for solutions. And, you know, that was something I got interested in. And I was like, well, but when's the last time I actually used seaweed? And it's like, well, I eat sushi. I had some seaweed there and then pretty much ran out of things. Well, since then, I started looking into the seaweed industry and it has so much potential. So modeled after Thor's uh, fish value machine, 100% fish value machine of cod uh, in the Iceland Ocean Cluster, we came up with the idea of a kelp value machine and looking at all the uses of seaweed or specifically in Long Island Sound sugar kelp. Because you can use it as food, you can make kelp jerky, you can make kelp noodles, you can ke make kelp salad, seaweed salad. You can use it in drinks. I have a student on my student innovation teams make uh, kombucha out of kelp. You can use the fibers to make it into clothing or into, into plastics, biodegradable plastics. Uh, it has lots of nutrients that can be used. It has lots of chemicals that can be used uh, for nutraceuticals or pharmaceuticals. It has, so the possibilities seem to be nearly endless for what you can do with sugar kelp. And so we started really thinking about that. You can use it as animal feed. There was a thing on LinkedIn today shared by Greenwave, Brent Smith's organization. Now, for anybody interested, you should really check out greenwave.org um, about uh, regenerative ocean farming. But they just forwarded a study from, I believe it was the University of California, Davis, about if you do feed cows, your dairy cows, seaweed, you can actually reduce the food intake without having any impact on the actual health or constitution of the cow. 
Um, it also is supposed to be, and that's from a different study, reducing the methane gas in the cow's stomach. So you're actually going to reduce, you know, cow farts for lack of a better term, uh, which obviously methane production is a, is a greenhouse gas. It contributes to global warming. It's used as fertilizers on farms, seaweed is. It can be used as, if it's not of the highest quality, it could be used as biochar to generate energy for or for composting. You could use it for... I've met a guy at a seaweed conference in Rhode Island earlier this year. His name is Marcus Scher, who is uh, having a seaweed farm, started a seaweed farm in Alaska, I believe something on the order of 100 acres, if I get that right. And uh, his one of his market ideas is to get it into the dog food industry. Uh, so kind of a different, different aspect of it. So there are endless uses for seaweeds. And if we, you know, looking at seaweed as a, as a positive way to farm, because it's zero input farming, you don't need to fertilize it, you don't need any chemical pesticides on it. Um, so you basically just put it in the ocean, let it grow, and it's good for the environment. It's, uh, it's the argument that, it's, uh, that it creates artificial reefs and increases biodiversity. So we created a transdisciplinary research action framework around this industry. So we have three projects going on right now that relate to it. One is kind of quantifying the carbon and nitrogen sequestration potential. Um, and other people are working on kind of the science end of it. Charlie Yarish from the University of Connecticut is working on that quite a bit. And we're looking kind of at the market end of it, like the economic end of it. If we can, if, if it's verified, well, we have verifiable numbers for carbon sequestration and nitrogen fixing, we could potentially translate that as payments for farmers from, for example, the government or somebody who wants to offset the carbon for travel, airline travel or car travel, whatever it might be. We could potentially create a carbon and nitrogen offset market through seaweed farming. That's one project. I have a graduate student working on that, uh, Louis Crack, a terrific student, a really, really bright young man um, who's working on that. And then we have uh, a second project, which is focused on looking at if seaweed farms, especially multi-species seaweed farms, actually do have a positive impact on biodiversity. So we have a project off of Martha's Vineyard. It's, I know it's not in Long Island Sound, which is our focus area. But we are working with uh, Cottage City Oysters, farmers out in Martha's Vineyard, oyster farmers that are interested in multi-species ocean farming. And we're having a previously unused kind of sandy beach spot, unused by humans, I want to say, beachy spot that we're going to monitor for a year. We're going to do some eDNA analysis and trying to figure out what the species biodiversity is in the location. A year later, we're going to plant a multi-species ocean farm and then we're going to keep testing it for two or three years with the hope that we can find some evidence that's out there that multi-species ocean farming, regenerative ocean farming, leads to increase in uh, species biodiversity, which would be a massive, massive win um, if that's the case, because we're obviously concerned about uh, species loss quite a bit. It's a significant uh, issue in our times. Hopefully that can then also be translated into an eco-label like an eco-label for biodiversity, just like the shade-grown coffee label that I talked about, which again, would farmers enable to get, gain more income onto their farms? Because at the end of the day, all those initiatives need to be able to be financially viable for farmers. Unless we completely throw over the economic system that our world operates under, which is capitalism, 
uh, we have to come up with solutions that work within. And that's kind of my focus right now. I think that's where the pragmatist end comes in. And then the third project that we do, and that's how you, Richard, got introduced into it, is uh, you know, the student innovation teams. Um, that so there's a student uh, focus there, it's focus on innovation, really trying to figure out how we can develop the market for seaweed. So we have uh, student innovation teams that are actually going to uh, present their uh, work from this one-year project that was funded by Connecticut Next. So we were able to fund student innovation teams over the summer with $15,000 per team. We had five teams, five student innovation teams. I think six or seven ideas came out of the student innovation teams. They'll be presented at a conference happening uh, November 4th to the 7th. Uh, it's called the Coastal Transitions 2020 Conference. It's on the heels of a con previous conference on the same kind of general topic of coastal transitions, sustainability transitions, that is, in 2017. Um, so this is our second time we're, we are hosting the conference together with Liverpool John Morse University in the UK and Mary Immaculate College in Ireland. My friends Celine germont Duret and John Morrissey and, and myself, we are organizing the conference. It's a conference of the International Geographical Union uh, you know, as kind of the overarching organization. And this year, because of COVID-19, it's fully virtual, which, you know, was hard to kind of do because I'm kind of an in-person person. I like to be around people. So it was a bit, bit of a shift for me, but I think we did, did a successful pivot. And the advantage of having the conference virtually this year is so that we can make it open for anybody. So you can actually sign up for the conference as a conference observer status, which is completely free, and it'll give you access to all the interesting papers that are going to be presented, the keynote lectures, one by Dr. Emma McKinley at Cardiff University. It's going to talk about the blue economy and marine social science. One by Thor Siegfersen from the Iceland Ocean Cluster on Entrepreneurship Day, which is on Saturday the 7th. That's where the students will present also their pitch competition. Uh, Thor, I believe, will be talking about the 100% fish model. And uh, an absolute wonderful talk coming up by Andre Snare Magnuson, uh, who just wrote a book uh, called On Time and Water. He's an Icelandic author, artist, activist. He ran for Icelandic president, unfortunately, unsuccessfully a couple of years back. He's also a dear friend. Um, and he wrote a terrific book about our role as humans, how we perceive time, how, how that fits into the narrative of climate change, how language matters. He, he's quite famous for also having written an obituary to a glacier. Um, in Iceland uh, last year, I believe that was. He recently spoke at a big TED climate change conference and uh, he spoke right after the Pope. So the Pope was his warm up act, I think, or at least that's how I looked at it. So he'll be speaking on uh, Friday in the late afternoon as our banquet speaker. And, you know, I, I encourage anybody who's interested to at least sign into the keynote sessions because they'll be terrific. Well, thanks, Patrick. Yeah, and that's coastaltransitions.org for our audience. Uh, you can go to that website and, and sign up. It should be uh, an amazing virtual conference. It's a little bit wonky how you get from the coastaltransitions.org website there, because that was the website that we had when it was non-virtual. 
So you have to go and you know, it says click here and then you eventually get to uh, the, the conference web page is complicated URL, but I'm pretty sure uh, Richard can share that uh, next to maybe the link for the for the podcast. Yes, we will. Uh, we'll share that in the description, certainly. So Patrick, uh, this has really been uh, great to spend some time with you today. I also want to mention to folks, if you'd like to learn more about Patrick, you can certainly search for him and his uh, bio will come up relative to uh, Southern Connecticut State University, but he also has his own uh, website, patrickheidkamp.com, H-E-I-D-K-A-M-P.com, and uh, we will also list that for you. Another interesting one for people that are interested, especially on the innovation piece, is we do have uh, projectblue.southernct.edu, or you can just Google Southern Connecticut State University Project Blue. You'll probably get from there to just about anything, because uh, it's got our profiles up, my collaborators, Colleen Bielitz, Emma Cross, links to my graduate students. Uh, we are always looking for students that are interested in things here like that at Southern Connecticut State University. So I know a lot of high school students right now are trying to make decisions on where they might start in the fall. Um, this is the time to kind of maybe check out what we do. Um, I know we, you know, we're not necessarily in the warmest place in the world or the most exciting ocean place in the world, but I think we have a terrific uh, program and really kind of focuses on undergraduate research experiences either through Project Blue, which is more on the innovation side, but also with work that uh, my colleague, Dr. Breslin Nass in the uh, Center for, World Center for Coastal and Marine Studies. We have a very, very strong research program going on about microplastics and identifying microplastics in the ocean and uh, looking at seasonal variation of microplastics right now. We had a master's student, Anthony Vignola, just finished a, a project on that basically finding out that in the uh, in the winter time we actually discharge more microplastics into uh, long island sound and that might be true because we do more washing of kind of polar tech fleece kind of things uh, where you know basically comes through the wash cycle now that's the research end now my innovative end then is well how can we fix that well some can we come up with better filters on washing machines so we keep more microplastics out of the ocean so we're hoping in our department to link the science to innovative solutions and we started to over the last five years started to focus on you know obviously the ocean environment long island sound we have a master's program in environmental studies um, that's always looking for students we have, I think, a reasonably rolling admissions schedule on that, so people could potentially even start uh, a master's program with us in, in, the, uh, in the spring, if you, know, you get your paperwork together and things like that. Yeah, so, and, and we're you know, working on uh, additional academic programming. Uh, we got the study abroad opportunities that are built into our programs. We have exchange programs with our partner institutions and the ones in our department we work strongly with the University Center of the West Fjords in Iceland. We have a student currently doing a master's degree there. We work with Liverpool John Morse University in the UK, which is our partner institution at an institutional level. So those are kind of the, the strong ones that we have a really, really good link to. And we're just starting a new one with Mary Immaculate College in Ireland as well. 
Um, and a lot of those have a kind of a coastal focus. So Liverpool, John Morris University in the UK has a very strong physical geography program. There's a lot of people working in coastal environments, looking at coastal paleoecology, paleoclimatology, um, marine science, all kinds of stuff. So we have a pretty nice network that uh, students can kind of get looped into uh, if they you know, decide to come to Southern Connecticut State University. And you know, feel free to get in contact with any of the faculty on the website, but definitely with me. Uh, we will give you the time of day and we will make sure we can give you tours and talk to you and figure things out. And if you need any help uh, reaching Patrick uh, or others there, you can also reach out to me and uh, be happy to facilitate that. Uh, Long Island Sound to me is a fascinating body of water. Uh, it's uh, on the east is Long Island, New York, and on the west is Connecticut. And on both ends of the sound, it opens up into the Atlantic Ocean. Basically, on the southern end, I guess it opens up more into the Hudson River, but uh, very close to the Atlantic. Um, but uh, it, it's a fascinating estuary, a very precious estuary in the United States. And Southern Connecticut State University is uh, really impressive what, uh, I mean, you've heard Patrick's words, how smart he is and uh, all the different programs that are going on. So it is definitely uh, worth checking out if you're, if you're looking at uh, your next step in your education. So Patrick, in, in closing, uh, I wanted to comment, you earlier, uh, I believe, called, called yourself a globalist. Uh, you know, you didn't want to label, but uh, that was one, uh, one label, if you will. Previously, you had also told me that you're a hopeless optimist. So I wonder if you could uh, maybe close our conversation and talk about what you mean by that. I, I think I, 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 I'm happy you remembered this um, because I think that's my key outlook. I have met lots of people, especially in the environmental movement, a bit depressed and looking at all the things bearing down on us in terms of climate change right now, and it's climate change right now. In, in 1993 in California, when I lived there, it wasn't climate change. It was about species and the, the loss of species and loss of habitat. And in 1980s in Germany, it was about nuclear power and the potential of a nuclear holocaust. And so the issues have changed. And I've been part of kind of key pieces in the environmental movement, at least, you know, not necessarily been a leader or anything, but I've paid attention to it. And what I found throughout was this overwhelming despair and negativity and we need to do something about it, but we really can't. And then there would be glimmers of hope, you know, like in the, in the current instance with, the, with you know, climate change, you know, Greta Thornburg, you know, obviously created a message of hope and kind of, but, but still it's, it, it's, there's a lot of negativity in all those movements. And I believe that we, and I think the left, the political left, is a whole bunch of pessimists. And I'm a part of the political left. I would clearly, clearly point that out. And I'm not ashamed of it. It's just who I am. But one of the things really that matters here is that we need to get away from just this pessimistic look. And because I believe the pessimistic look is also very reactionary. And I'm looking at the world differently. Looking at this small win in South Africa about getting power in a small impoverished community, that's an incremental change. And I actually have to say, even though we have pressing, pressing environmental issues, and, and ideally we could come up with some radical quick transformation, 
But I think the human success story so far has been one of incremental change that has been slightly getting better. Obviously, there's setbacks in, in terms of environmental things, but I, in, in, the, in the end, I'm optimistic in that we come up with solutions, and it might not be technical solutions. I'm not somebody who buys into any technical or socio-technical solution towards sustainability, but I do believe that a good dose of optimism and really relying on the ingenuity of what we can come up with collectively, not as individuals. I think one of the biggest things we are waiting on as a society is because we, we kind of idolize people that come up with a great idea. We put him on a pedestal. We put Elon Musk on a pedestal because he's a great entrepreneur who comes up, you know, 20 years from now, people say he invented the electric car, which he didn't, obviously. It's all about collective. So if we can come up with collectively puts our head together, I am very, very optimistic really optimistic that we can come up with the solutions that we need to come up with to preserve the human species on this planet and not just run away from this planet and go somewhere else. I've never been much of a science fiction person, but um, yeah, I like this planet. I don't really want to leave. You know, they talk about going to Mars and I have yet to see that really cool ocean with the awesome waves I can surf there. I don't see it. Now, I also have to say optimism and this hope comes from a, you know, position of privilege. I'm a college professor. I've never, you know, aside from living in my car for a really brief stint in California where we couldn't afford a house, my wife and I, and we lived in the car with our dogs, I really haven't had many economic extreme hardships. I've always worked. I've always been able to somehow make it work. And if I couldn't make it work, I was able to rely on others. I'm a white male living in a society that privileges white males. So obviously that influences where I come from. I can see how people can be hopeless in a situation. When I talk about, you know, hopeless optimism or, you know, hopeful, hopeful optimism or who I am really, it really kind of is not just one person, but it's about how collectively we can do things together. And I think if we put our heads together, work together on solutions and on co-creating knowledge, we can be, uh, you know, I think we can be quite optimistic for what the future holds. And I think a lot of people in the environmental movement, especially, are don't really portray a hopeful message. Thank you, Patrick. We want to say thank you, as always, for listening to the Blue Earth Podcast. If you like our content and want to find more, you can find us on social media at Future Frogmen or at our website at futurefrogmen.org. We release episodes every Monday, and so until next week, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thank you.